You are listening to season four of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, a 10 part series in which hardware wallet makers and breakers get interviewed. Before I introduce this episode's guests, let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Hi there. If you're listening to this, then I have to thank you for not skipping the ads, I guess. Anyway, before I let you hear the recording that I have done with JW, I just have to let you know that JW and I have done the recording on the worst possible day ever, January 14th. Which, if you check the Zencaster Twitter page, was a terrible day for their servers. And there are moments when we were disconnecting and we were not able to hear each other. But in spite of these moments, I did my best to edit the recording and make the most out of it. And offer you the kind of 
experience which is worthwhile and helps you learn something new. Because J.W. Wetterman, despite being controversial in the community and having his own critics, has some interesting opinions about cold storage and how instead of purchasing hardware wallets, sometimes it's just better to get a $60 computer, wipe it, install Ubuntu, and run Bitcoin Core on it. That's definitely an interesting take. And yeah, you will not be able to hear everything that we discussed because I had to cut the parts where we were just asking each other, hi, can you hear me? Did you get that? It's not the best of dialogues, but it's definitely an interesting conversation that we're having. Also, before I let you start listening to the show, I have to let you know that Femex, which is one of the show's sponsors, has a contest that you can find on Twitter, and if you're good enough, you can win 2.1 BTC. There is no sign-up required, there is just one picture with the portrait of Dorian Nakamoto, who sometimes is the bonafide image of Satoshi, and If you manage to crack the code that's hidden in this picture, then you will get all the characters to a private key. And after that, you can get the 2.1 BTC with Electrum or some other wallet where you import your private key. So if you're the smart type and you like challenges and you like this type of Bitcoin art contests, then you're going to enjoy this and let me know if you succeed. Also, if you don't think that you can crack the code, you can get $100 trading bonus if you retweet and tag somebody who actually cracks the code. So even if you assist in cracking the code, you can still get something, which is nice. So thank you Femex for sponsoring the show. And if you want to join their contest and try to crack the code, The account name on Twitter is P-H-E-M-E-X underscore official. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this show. Hi there and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and my guest today is J.W. Wetterman, who is the founder of YetiCold.com, a multi-sig cold storage solution. And also mathbot.com, which is a programming tool where you play a fun game to learn coding and mathematics, I guess. I haven't tried it, but that's what it looks like if you open the website mathbot.com. And also J.W. Wetterman is responsible for building this platform, which is called 10hoursbitcoin.com. You have audio files that you listen And in 10 hours, you learn all about Bitcoin, Lightning Network, handling your private keys and everything that you need to know to start and at least learn the basic vocabulary and the concepts revolving around Bitcoin in a very very short amount of time. So thank you very much, sir, for accepting to do this interview. Yeah, man, that's my pleasure. Thanks Thanks for having me. I know that this season is pretty much on the topic of hardware wallets and cold storage. And I also know that you are a lot more in favor of general purpose hardware 
as opposed to something that you buy from Trezor or Ledger and has a serial number and can potentially leak some data about your transactions? Yeah, yeah, I definitely am. Um, so I'm kind of like the anti-Bitcoin hardware guy, I think, um, as far as what everybody is, uh, what everybody's excited about right now. I think, I think having uh, a hardware device specifically designed and targeted to Bitcoiners, especially if we're talking about um, cold storage, where we're not just targeting Bitcoiners with this device, but we're targeting people that have enough Bitcoin to where they're willing to invest, say, 100 bucks into securing it. I think that's a real problem because I'll give you a, give you one example. Um, in, in general, you know, the, the class of attacks I'm worried about are called supply chain attacks. But one example is imagine that you work in uh, a shipping center and you know, like you work in an Amazon distribution center and you, you have access to whatever uh, system keeps track of what devices are what right in the box. Somebody always does. Um, if, if you believe that Bitcoin is going to appreciate, then you're really, really incentivized to grab those devices and swap them out, right? And there are measures that companies are taking, you know, like tamper evident bags and things like that. But those are not that expensive to get around. Like most people that grab a hardware wallet are not going to go out to the website and like compare serial numbers on a tamper evident bag or something like that. They're going to they're gonna pop it in and use it. Um, and not even all the hardware manufacturers are going to do that because it is expensive uh, to try to address that stuff. Um, and I think it also causes people to get aware of it, right? Like if, if I send you out something that has a tamper evident bag, you're going to be like, oh, wow, I never really thought about it. But how do I know that this di- device has really not been tampered with? Uh, could, could I create a piece of plastic that looks like this, eh, you know, for the right amount of money? Um, so for, for those reasons, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, and that, that applies universally. Um, but uh, even if those were addressed, the other kind of major class of concerns that I have are just around code review. Um, so what, when you're doing something like you're generating private keys, you have to, you have to trust the software that you're using, that it's creating a completely random number, right. Or, or somebody could guess it. And the problem with, um, these hardware devices is that they're not popular enough to, they're, they're not nearly as popular as like Bitcoin core, for example. So you have a lot of people that would catch a security bug in Bitcoin core, um, a lot of developers looking at the code. You have a lot fewer looking at the hardware devices. Um, the counter to that is that there's less code to look at in the hardware devices than there is in, in Bitcoin Core. Um, and while that's true, I still don't think it even comes close to outweighing. Um, so an example here would be, let's say your favorite, you know, your favorite hardware company, Trezor. Um, they have a developer that wants to insert a security bug. Probably, you know, it's a small enough company to where one or two guys colluding together could put a bug into that software that would make the private key generation less predictable. And maybe somebody would catch it, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it wouldn't be subtle enough, or maybe there's more people looking at that code than I give them credit for, you know, outside of the company. Um, but uh, whew, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't choose that when I can choose something that's far more popular and far more secure. Um, for larger amounts, right? I, I always have to qualify it with a dollar amount. Like if you're if you're working with less than fifty grand and you're doing a lot of transactions, then any any hardware wallet I think is fine. But if you're going to store half a million bucks, 
uh, you know, take the extra 15 minutes of hassle uh, to not use a hardware wallet that has those potential issues and just use Bitcoin Core. Okay, so is this your advice? If you're dealing with small amounts, it's a lot safer to run a full node on your computer and use this type of hot storage? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't. So like if, if, like nobody in my family uses a hardware wallet. Um, so it's not really like I'm recommending that you do it. I'm just saying it's okay. It's fine. Like if you want to use a Trezor and you got a couple thousand bucks, um, or you, you know, a ledger or a cold card or even a keep key, uh, that's fine for a couple thousand bucks. Like I, I wouldn't bust your chops over it, but, um, but I would still like, if you were asking for my advice and you said, I want to store a couple thousand bucks, I would say, go out to yetycold.com and just follow the, the little wizard. And what that's going to do is it's going to help you take a generic laptop that you can get for a hundred bucks. Um, you could actually get them used for like 50 bucks. Uh, one of the guys, that's going to be in this workshop that I'm going to do in a couple hours. Um, it picked up a couple of uh, Chromebooks for like 60 bucks each and put Ubuntu on them. So what I would recommend if it was my grandma and uh, she wanted to do that is I'd probably have to install Ubuntu for her, right? Because, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a hassle. Uh, but I just get her a cheap laptop. I'd throw Ubuntu on it and, uh, and I'd use the wizard on yetycold.com to, uh, download and install Bitcoin Core and have me write down her seed words. And, uh, you know, for 60 bucks, you have a, a full node that's doing everything security related that you really want. And it's using the most trustworthy software that humanity has access to. Um, so that's what I would do. Um, but if she was excited about some gadget, uh, I'd be like, that's cool. You know, it's only 2000 bucks. Grab a, grab a cold card or whatever, and it'll probably be fine. I think compared to the others, something that cold card does is to use PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, in order for you to never connect the device to your computer. So it never goes on the internet. No. That's I something mean, interesting. It, it would be if it was if it actually did that. Um, and there there are interesting things happening. Like I don't I, I like Rodolfo. He's a good guy. Um and I think he's like, if I was going to buy a hardware wallet, it would probably be a cold card because uh, they're, they're always doing interesting, cool stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I like him. Uh, like I, I personally think he's just a good dude. Uh, but there's a limit to how much, how much money that I would put on it. Um, probably no more than 50 grand, um, which is a lot, right? So like almost everybody listening is like, yeah, it's fine. Um, so when you see me on Twitter, just talking trash about hardware wallets, it's, it's all, I, I always have to try to qualify that, but it's just hard to get nuance across in Twitter. Um, when it comes to hardware wallets, there's a lot of confusion about exactly what they do um, and what they need to do. So if you take a step back and you think about all the things that you want done, like when somebody sends you money, uh, when somebody sends you Bitcoin, you want to know that that's real Bitcoin, right? You, you want to make sure that they're not sending you Bcash or some goofy thing. Um, you want to make sure it's not double spent um, so that you actually have it. So that, that relates to basically showing you your balance. Um, and then you want it to hold your private keys and make sure your private keys don't get off. You want it to, um, when you go to send a transaction, you want to make sure you're sending it to the right address, right? So if, if you owe me 200 bucks and I send you an address and then you use your software to send that 200 bucks to that address, you want to know that that address is really my address and not some attacker's address. 
Um, I lost you there for a second. Uh, I'll, I'll just keep rolling though. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that doesn't come out too bad on the audio. Um, so, and then the other thing you want to do is you want it to deal with your change addresses. Um, if, if it does support change addresses. So can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So you dropped for like two minutes or something. <sighs> I couldn't hear anything. So the last part I heard was that if you were to buy one hardware wallet, it would be Rodolfo's Novax cold oh, card, but man. then it just dropped. I could not hear anything. I tried to type to you in the chat. Mm. <laughs> I guess you're yeah. much too into the argument. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was on a roll. That, that was that was gold. Sorry, guys, you missed out. That was the most important things that I ever have said, and now you missed it. So I don't, I'll never remember it. Um, okay, so uh, let's see. So after. Uh, after I said that, yeah, so if I was going to buy a hardware wallet, um, and I'm going to stare at the chat just in case I could, <laughs> if I was going to buy a hardware wallet, it probably would be a cold card because uh, Rodolfo is a cool guy and they make really good stuff. Um, and they're always like helping push the limit of what Bitcoin can do. Um, and they're also Bitcoin only, so they don't support scam coins. And I respect them a lot for doing that. Um, but I still wouldn't put more than 50 grand on one. Um, or use it to generate keys where I s store more than $50,000. Um, because that's such a large amount of money that it's worth whatever additional hassle is, might be involved with getting a full node set up. Um, and you had said, like, uh, the cold card will keep your keys uh, on, a, you know, completely disconnected and uh, use this partially signed Bitcoin transactions. Um one of the big problems with hardware wallets is there's a lot of confusion over what they do and what they don't do. Um, and I, I need to do like a, a, a threat model similar to the Bitcoin threat model that I put out, but for private custody. But just to give you a quick rundown of all the things that you want your, that people kind of think their hardware wallet is doing, that it's not, uh, and it's not doing a lot of these things, is you want it to tell you what your balance is in a trustworthy way. It can't do that. Only a Bitcoin full node can do that. You want it to uh, hold your keys and keep them safe. In theory, it can do that. Um, you want it to make sure that when you send money to an address, it's the right address. Again, it really can't do that because um, it's it's uh, it's it's trusting the uh, computer that you're plugged into. Um, and there may be exceptions in some, you know, nuance here and there. But basically, everything that a Bitcoin full node does for you, tell you your balance, uh, allow you to send transactions, manage your change outputs, and hold your private keys. Um, those four things, I think a lot of people assume, because they're security critical, they're being handled by their hardware wallet. And the reality is that maybe one, of, one or two of those four things are being handled by your hardware wallet, and the rest is actually being handled by the PC that you're plugging it into. Um, and if there's one thing that I don't like about hardware wallets is that people think that because I have this hardware wallet, I can plug it into an untrustworthy computer. But if that untrustworthy computer is doing any security critical functions, that's not true. But that's kind of the whole sales pitch for a hardware wallet. So that's, that's probably the most critical thing that I'll say about them that, you know, pisses me off a little bit. I don't think they're being marketed very uh, honestly, but... Uh, but again, for less than 50 grand, it's probably fine. Okay, that's interesting because when I spoke to one of the people who hack hardware wallets and have collected bounties from Coldcard and from Bitbox, I think, yeah, 
He said that if you were to choose one device, it would be the Trezor, just because of the Lindy effect and for the fact that it has been around for such a long time that he's sure that it's much more honest than the rest and there's a team working to fix bugs and it's harder to find exploits on an old device. Well, those guys have had a, quite a few. I mean, there's no hardware wallet that I know of that hasn't had some pretty nasty bugs released over the last year, um, including Trezor. So uh, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, there, there's, a, there's different trade-offs, right? So some hardware wallets have closed source um, uh, chips. Some hardware wallets have open source chips. Some use secure elements. Some don't use secure elements. Um, for me, I don't know that any of those things impact how much money I would actually put on it. Like the main thing that I would be worried about with a hardware wallet, assuming it's being used for cold storage and not day-to-day transactions, is just that it generated, it used good entropy when it created my seed words. And I don't know, I, that's basically a security code review problem, right? Um, so I guess if I was really trying to pick a favorite, I'd try to pick the one that I think has the most security code review on that. Uh, but really, before I, like, if I'm taking that much time to think about it, I'm just, I'm grabbing a $60 laptop and I'm throwing Ubuntu and Bitcoin Core on it and I'm done. So, like, I see them more as a, as a tool of, like, convenience and fun um, than, uh, than a, a real security tool. Here's a good question about these $60 laptops. How do you make sure that you wipe them? Do you totally replace the hard drive or what do you do to them in order to be sure that they're not going to leak any data somewhere else and you don't know about it? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So there's no solution that doesn't have risk. Um, And I think one of the things that I should mention to put this in context is that like hardware wallets are probably infinitely better than your bank account security right now. And certainly what I recommend you do, like using Bitcoin Core, um, is infinitely more secure than your bank account. And uh, like I, I, I want to call that out because there's so many hidden costs in bank accounts. Um, I was looking at the stat. Uh, there are something like three to 4,000 bank robberies in the United States uh, per year, um, which is several per day. And we don't really care about that because it's all FDIC insured. But that just means that all of that cost is hidden, right? So with with Bitcoin, part of the reason that it goes up in value, you know, if if our economic theories turn out to be right, is that it has a limited supply um, and scarce. It's not being printed. But the federal government is actually printing a ton of U.S. dollars. And they say they're targeting like 2% inflation, but they're constantly taking the way that they measure that and they're tweaking it. So it's probably more like 5 to 6% inflation, which means if you have $100 a year later, it's worth 96 cents, right? And in only a, a year um, or nine, maybe 94 cents. But that also doesn't account for the fact that everything's supposed to get cheaper. So like, you know, every time a new shoe factory is, is created, the price of shoes should go down a little bit, right? Like every time we come up with a new piece of technology, a new piece of software, the things that we're extracting from nature should get cheaper, but they don't, they actually go up, you know, depending on if you, ah. uh, let's see, how long did I lose you there? Not for a single second. I have no idea what happened, <laughs> but I, I saw that message. I heard you 
it was recorded because I can see the waveform. Okay. All right. So I'll keep going. So what I was saying about inflation is that um, you think that they're, you think you're only being stolen from, or, you know, your, your savings, let's say to be more generic or being uh, redistributed or, you know, taken by the federal government and used how they see fit a few, a few percentage points a year. But because things should be getting cheaper, it's actually more than that. We don't know exactly what it should be. But my guess is that it's probably closer to 10% per year is what is actually being siphoned off. Um, and it could be quite a bit more than that. Um, or it could be a, you know, a little bit less than that. Maybe it's closer to the 3 or 4%. But either way, that, that turns out to be a lot of money. And that money is used to just pay people off when they have their stuff stolen out of their bank account. It funds all the FBI investigations. It funds all the counterfeiting investigations. Um, and so you are paying for a lot of stuff. And so when people compare like the user experience of cold storage to the user experience of having money in the bank, they're like, ah, oh, this user experience is so much more superior. I, you know, I have a problem. I have somebody I can call, blah, blah, blah. Right. But you don't realize that there's a ton of hidden costs in there. Um, and if you actually, if you actually had to pay for those hidden costs, you wouldn't like it very much. And you would say that even with the hassle of having to learn how to install Ubuntu uh, for a non-technical person, the user experience is far superior than, uh, than, uh, than what, you're, what you're actually getting. But all of those costs, uh, and mostly their financial costs, are hidden, um, those, those subsidies. So I want to just call that out there because I think people get frustrated with how hard this stuff is, but they just don't have the proper context for it. This is the best, like Bitcoin cold storage right now is by far the most incredible user experience for storing your wealth. And it's only going to get better, but it is the gold standard. It's, it's, it's better when you count and when you include all of the real costs and all of the aspects of the user experience than anything that we've ever had. So now, yeah. uh, sorry, I thought it would be a good idea to point out the differences between hardware wallets and cold storage because there's always this confusion mostly due to the marketing that hardware wallets have that you store your keys offline but you do connect them to a computer yeah and they're not like a paper wallet or something that you scratch on a metal plate right so that's a good point i think cold storage in general is kind of this generic term but for me in order to really feel like it's cold storage the keys have to be on a device that's never again connected to the internet and, and, and this is really important, the only data channel, because there has to be some data exchange, right? So in a way, you're saying it's like offline, but it's useless if it's never, if it never exchanges data with the internet or with a device that connects to the internet. So for me, I don't consider it really cold storage unless the only way to transfer data is via QR code. And the reason for that is that if I plug in my hardware wallet to my computer, there's a big fat data pipe. And it basically, you know, like in, in, for all intents and purposes, it's one device now. And there's an attempt to make sure that, uh, that the data that's exchanged is, on, is like validated and correct and, and that that device is protected. But when you have such a huge amount of data that can be transferred, um, your attack surface is just much bigger, right? Um, and it's, it also means that you're not able to validate that data. So... If, for example, you have a computer that's compromised, let's say you have $100,000 in a hardware wallet, and you plug in that $100,000 hardware wallet to your computer, and you want to move it to Yeti Cold or something else, you're going to see an address pop up, and then you're going to send it. 
if everything that the hardware law does is correct, but your computer actually switches out the QR code on you because it's compromised, you just lost all your money. So you want to make sure that any data that goes into your hardware wallet or out of your hardware wallet is human validated if it's really cold storage. Um, and QR codes make that easy because it's a very small amount of data that you have to validate. Um, and you can just, you, you can scan the QR code with another, you know, with your phone and read what the QR code data is before you scan it with your hardware wallet. Um, and uh, so, so unless it's QR code only, I really don't consider it, uh, I really don't consider it offline uh, cold storage. I feel like before we move on and talk about the details which surround your cold storage solution, Yeti Cold, we should move on and talk about multi-sig, what it does, why it's important. And I remember I had the privilege to listen to a conversation between two very famous and prominent Bitcoiners from North America. And one of them said at some point, I think he was a bit drunk and said, why do people waste so much time building multi-sig solutions? Because nobody uses them. They're kind of pointless and they're hard to understand. They're hard to implement. And the other one just contradicted him and said, no, it's very useful. It's good for security and stuff like that. So why should anyone ever use a multi-sig? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Actually, the uh, the guys at Trezor were just telling me on Twitter yesterday or the day before that they don't think multi-sig is a good idea. Um, and uh, I think that that's, that's I'll, I'll try to explain what it is. And then I think it'll be pretty obvious why it's important. So ultimately, what, what happens when you're controlling Bitcoin is you have access to a secret. You have some secret words. And if you use those secret words, um, you're able to send the Bitcoin balance that, that shows up there, right? Um, and if you don't have those secret words, you can't send it. But anybody that gets a hold of those secret words, you know, is basically the owner, right? So you, you have your Bitcoin seed words or your private key. Um, the distinction doesn't really matter for this. Um, and if, you, if you're the only one in the world that has that, then you own that Bitcoin. But the moment three other people, the moment three other people own that as well, right? They have access to that data. It's no longer your Bitcoin, right? It's, you know, as far as Bitcoin's concerned, it, that Bitcoin belongs to whoever decides to use those magic words first to transfer it. Um, and so what multisig does is it allows you to have multiple sets of those magic words and, uh, and you have to have a certain number, a certain threshold. So you could say, okay, I, and I'll, I'll just use the word password um, to, to be really generic here. So... Uh, you can set it up to where you need three of five passwords in order to send the Bitcoin. Um, and that's really nice because ultimately you need to write these passwords down. They're way too long to memorize. So you're going to write these passwords down. And if you just write one password down and put it in your home safe, then you have a fire and you're screwed. Like even if it's a fireproof safe, a lot of times paper will burn or, uh, or there's a flood, right? Uh, there's not a whole lot of flood proof safes out there. Um, and so you don't want to just have it in one spot, but if you break up that password into little chunks, then it gets weaker um, because it's smaller. So you don't really want to do that. Uh, what's better is having five different passwords and having a threshold requirement. Like you have to use three of those five passwords. It doesn't matter what three in order to send the Bitcoin. 
And that allows you to distribute these passwords physically, right? So you can have one at a safety deposit box, one with a lawyer, one with an accountant, one at your house, um, and one at your mom's house on the other side of the country, something like that. And that's much better because even if your mom decides that, you know, she's going to be a hacker and gets a hold of one of your, uh, one of your magic words, she still needs two others in order to, to spend that Bitcoin. Um, and ideally, when you store them in other places or with other people, you do it in a way where those people don't even know what they're storing. So if you were to, you know, uh, use your lawyer to store one of these passwords, um, you wouldn't tell your lawyer, hey, this is my Bitcoin password. And if you get, you know, uh, two more of them, you can spend all my Bitcoin. What you would do is probably just put in a nondescript envelope. Um, it'd look really boring. And it would just say something like estate plan or um, something generic. And you would just ask your attorney, hey, can you keep a copy of this, you know, as a backup? And it wouldn't even be interesting to them, right? They've been doing this for hundreds of years. So they're just going to throw it in a file cabinet. Um, so multi-sig allows you to do that. It allows you basically to keep your passwords in multiple locations. Yeah, that's interesting. But what about these companies that do multi-sig or how you call it, multi-sig, and they claim that they help you pass on your Bitcoins when you die. And there's this type of inheritance program. I think Casa does this and they have a free of five. Yeah. But that's the premium one. I think the basic one is two of three. And they hold one of the keys, but I'm not sure who holds the second one. Yeah, you, or you hold two of them. I think, if I remember right, um, you uh, Casa holds one of the keys in that two of three, and you hold two others. Um, I there's a there's a couple of reasons that I really don't like those services. Um, the first is that they have no way to authenticate you. So the reason that we use passwords, and again, it could be your private key or your seed phrase, um, just using password to be generic so that everybody kind of gets the idea. The reason that we use passwords is that that's the only way that humanity has figured out you can actually authenticate somebody um, at all. <laughs> so like, if I come to your bank um, and I want to get access to my money, uh, this, is a, this is another place where you think that it's a great user experience because you just pop out your driver's license. Somebody that doesn't even know you looks at your driver's license and says, yeah, that's you. And then they just give you access to whatever's in that account, right? Or maybe you have a debit card um, and, and that's used, you know, but usually people can lose their debit card and they can just come in with a, with a photo ID, right? Um, that's why it's so great. I can always get access to my money. But what that means is that anybody that kind of looks like you or anybody that wants to spend $70 on a fake ID um, is going to be able to impersonate you in the bank and take out your money. And it doesn't seem like that big of a deal because the cost benefit for attackers isn't that great because you have just a crazy amount of money that the FBI will spend tracking you down, right? Like if you do that for five grand, because it's a threat to the system, the FBI will spend $100,000 to track you down. Um, Without, without blanking an eye. And you don't know that you, you're spending that money, right? But we're all spending that money. So the only way that actually works is to give you some secret information or for you to have some secret information, essentially a password. And then anybody that provides that password has access to the, uh, to the resource. Um, there's things that we've experimented with fingerprint scanners and retinal scanners and all this sort of stuff. None of it works the only thing that works is cryptography, and that requires that it, it be a, a password. Um, so when we're talking about somebody like Casa or Unchained Capital offers a service like this, it's getting, getting some traction. Um, 
the reason that that's a bad idea is that you give them a password and you tell them to hold on to this password and don't use that password unless it's me. But how are they supposed to know that it's you, right? Are they in love with you if they spent like 20 years married to you? No, there's going to be some dude that's making 20 bucks an hour and his job is to verify that you are you and then give access to this uh, private key that gets access to your Bitcoin. The way to fix that, if they wanted to provide this service, would be um, for them to hold your password and then give you a password so that you can authenticate yourself to them to get access to your password. But obviously, that's very stupid, right? Like passwords to get access to passwords. We're just in an endless loop here. Um, So that's why I don't, that's one of the reasons I don't like the service because it just logically makes no sense. But the other is that I don't want some guy having access to enough data, maybe to figure out what my balance is, maybe not, um, that knows that I own Bitcoin, right? I mean, whether, whether they can fully authenticate me and not give my keys to an attacker is a pretty uh, logical problem that I think most people can follow. But the other problem is, um, actually, I, I think it was, was it BitFi? There was a company recently that does loans and somebody found out that they were reporting to the government uh, because there were forms that they had to fill out about exactly who owns what that's in their custody and they were sending them off to you know, some agency. Well, you shouldn't be shocked, right? Like that's that's how these things work usually. Um, so, you know, if if you're trusting Jameson Lop because he's such a cool guy to never share your balance with any anybody that's doing an investigation or a fishing expedition or whatever, um, I don't know why you would want to take on that risk, especially since like you can just hire an attorney. You could, and they probably won't charge you anything to hold the document. Um, and they're going, they've been doing this for a long time and they're going to do a better job at it. And if it's multi-sig, that's going to be fine, right? You don't want to do that for everybody because of that sort of logical authentication problem. But, um, but it's a lot easier for an attorney to figure out who you are when they don't have, you know, tons and tons of people and they're not really a target. Um, cause a lot of this thing, this comes down to targeting, right? If I'm an attacker and I want to steal somebody's Bitcoin, I definitely think about CASA. But I don't think about, you know, Joe Schmo attorney um, and trying to figure out whether any of his clients have given him a key. Right? It's, it's the, the, the cost benefit isn't really there for the attacker um, and it's cheaper. So do that instead. Yeah, that's an interesting take because some people would just argue that it's convenient, but I'm always happy when I talk to security people and they present all the arguments why it's a bad idea. And I remember when I was a university student in my second year and I wanted to do a bachelor thesis on the subject of online voting. And at the time, I thought it was the best idea ever. Right. It would, you know, increase participation and make it all very cool and increase youth participation because usually young people don't don't vote too much these days. And I spoke to one of the experts from the parliament And he told me, you know, it's all very nice and you can even make it very safe to the extent that nobody can hack it. But at the end of the day, you cannot guarantee that it's direct, meaning that the person voting is actually you because anyone can steal your credentials and vote for you. And physically, when you go to the ballot and put one piece of paper into the box, we can ensure we can validate and authenticate that you're the person voting 
But when you have to do it in front of a computer or a phone or anything else, there can be a lot of fraud there. And that's not something that anyone can prevent or check unless you become Orwellian. And that's better not to get there. Yeah. And the the core problem, I think that was the moment when I realized that sometimes traditional solutions and something very basic that has proven to work for a longer time is a better idea than inventing problems and trying to find solutions for them with technology. Yeah, the core problem there is actually um, what what we call identity. And uh, there's kind of two different ways that you can do identity. One is you tie it to your your body, right? Like, Vlad, you are that physical person, um, and you have access to certain things. The problem with that is that you basically have to be uh, bagged and tagged, right? Like we need we need to put a chip in in the in your brain stem so it can't be removed without killing you for that to be a viable way to authenticate you. Because everything else that we've come up with, and even that, I'm sure that that's not even possible, right? It could if, if we can put it in there and not kill you, we could probably take it out and not kill you. Um, so there's really no way to do that. The other way to do identity is basically reputation based, um, where you know I don't I don't know you know who you are, but you have this secret, right? And you can you can prove that you have access to this password, right? Without giving it away, um, without anybody else getting a copy of it, which is why biometrics incidentally doesn't work. If I take a scan of your hand, the blood vessels in your hand or something like that to authenticate you, as I do that, I get the data about your hand and then I could reuse that, right? Like at some point you could either fake it um, by somebody else, you know, creating a fake hand or you could just jack in, like do a man in the middle attack between the hand reader and the computer that is actually giving you access. And then whatever data that is being sent through there could just be repeated, right? You can just repeat that data. So you can't, uh, the, the, the cool thing about cryptography is that when you have a password, you can prove that you have access to that password without ever sharing that password. We can't do that with hands or eyes. I can't prove that it, I can't show you my eye without giving you all the data to fake my eye. Um, so it really, that's one of the reasons it has to come down to passwords. And, uh, when it comes to voting, because it's not about like individual identities and reputations, it's about individual meat bags, right? Individual physical beings. We really just don't have the technology to solve that at all. So it's kind of a broken system. And I think it's, I think it's one of those things that's broken because of the laws of the universe. I don't think we can fix it. Um, so you know, leaving it as is and just having people fill out paperwork probably as good as anything. I remember back in 2014, 2015, that I was reading about Bitcoin being implanted as a microchip under your skin right? in terms of private keys being stored there. And I think this is tied to this topic that you get identified by your body. And if you decide to implant your private keys in a chip that is under your skin, that's not really safe, is it? No. And actually, I know of at least one guy that has done this. Um, and then he looked into how RFIDs actually work more. And uh, it turns out that the connection between his chip and the rest of the world is pretty easy to intercept uh, because it's not encrypted. It's not a high enough power computer that, that is in the RFID that's in your body. Um, in his case, I think he put it uh, in his, uh, behind his bicep, like his tricep area. So, you know, he, he did this goofy thing and then anybody could come by and uh, basically read the RFID. It, it's kind of the same thing as like, 
you know, people with uh, RFID readers walking around the mall and trying to get close to people's purses to read the, that, that used to be a thing with, I uh, can't remember which credit cards were doing that, but, uh, but no, it's the, the, the idea of, of being able to have this physical device, um, it, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, ultimately, you have to have those secret words because those secret words, the only thing that we can do math on and then transmit the results uh, to the person that's trying to verify your identity or verify, you know, to authenticate you and then authorize you. In, in the case of the Bitcoin network, you know, the Bitcoin network verifies that you have access to those magic words. Um, so ultimately it comes down to, it's gotta be something that, you know, um, and that can, can, uh, be calculated upon, um, and then transmit the results to verify that, you know, it without sharing that thing, you know, and so that it has to be data. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to change maybe ever. Like I said, it could be just a law of the universe, but we've certainly not come up with anything that's even close. Um, and I, I've never even heard anybody theorize as to how else it could work. Um, and that's why I say, look, Bitcoin is the best user experience by far because it uses that cryptography to authenticate you. And uh, it doesn't pretend to be able to do anything else that's just, you know, uh, security theater nonsense. So, um, yeah, to, to bring it back to the cold storage issue, though, that thing that you know, that's as good as it gets. So don't give that thing that you know to somebody else so that they can you know, so they can be this gatekeeper. Um, instead, use multi-sig, have multiple things that you know stored in multiple locations and preferably locations like lawyers. And a lot of these problems that people say, like for inheritance planning, need to be solved by this, you know, centralized company that holds one of your keys and knows who you are. Um, for estate planning stuff, a lot of this stuff has been worked out, right? Like if you die, you don't really have to worry about your kids getting access to your safety deposit box. If you did it right, they'll get access quickly. If you did it wrong, they'll get access slowly. But they will get access to your safety deposit box if you die. Um, the same thing with like uh, some envelope that's with your attorney that says will on it, right? Like that's going to probably come into play. Um, so take advantage of these hundreds of years that we've had to try to work out these problems as best we can. And, and multi-sig allows you to do that. Um, and, uh, and do it in a way that's, it's free, right? Like I, I, I don't get anything for telling you this information, but if I give you bad information and sell you some product or some service, um, I could probably make a couple bucks doing it. So, you know, look at the incentives and, uh, pick your experts carefully. Right. And I feel like I have teased the concept of Yeti cold for long enough. And right now I'm on the website, yetikold.com. And I see that you have three options on the option three. You can choose between Yeti Hot, which is hot storage recommended for storing under $5,000. There is Yeti Worm Storage, which is probably a hybrid or something, for storing between $5,000 and $50,000 worth of Bitcoin. And it's a free of seven HD, what does HD mean? Uh, hierarchical or hierarchical deterministic wallet. I probably didn't. Hierarchical deterministic wallet. It just means that you have, um, you have one password, let's say. You have one seed phrase. Um, and that allows you to create multiple addresses and private keys so that you don't have to have all of your money on one private key or one address. Um, so if you had a million bucks, You'd want one password, but you would want, you know, maybe more, no more than five or ten thousand dollars per address on the Bitcoin blockchain because you don't want to draw too much attention to that 
that address. Um, and that allows you to do that. So basically all Bitcoin wallets are like that now. The only people that are not doing uh, HD would be either people that have like old style paper wallets um, or who else? Is, oh, uh, I think Unchained Capital released something called Hermit and I don't think that's HD. Uh, so it's like this app that allows you to do a, a multi-sig setup, which is kind of cool. Like I, I appreciate those guys and I appreciate that they published it, but it's not HD and I wouldn't recommend it for large amounts. I don't think exchanges do this either, especially after they had to comply with more regulations. They just give you one address and that's it. Uh, that that might be true. I'm I'm not really sure. I don't go in and out of exchanges very much. Um, but uh, yeah, it really doesn't it doesn't apply as much to to exchanges because they're just they they just have a big database that has all your balances and all your transactions. Um, but pretty much any Bitcoin wallet. Like I don't, I don't think there are any Bitcoin wallets out there. Even the really crappy ones that you find on the App Store, I think they're all HD now. Okay, moving back to Yeti Cold, you have the Yeti Cold storage, which you recommend for more than fifty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, and I think it says the same. It's a free out of seven. H, the D stands for deterministic, but yeah. what does H stand Hierarchical? for? Hierarchical. 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 Okay, that, that's not easy for me to pronounce. <laughs> Multi-sig setup where private keys are never on an internet connection device. And the other one, which is Worm, says that requires only a single computer to set up. And right now, I think I have under $5,000. So let me click on this on Yeti Hot. And it says I need to get a laptop that can run Ubuntu and Bitcoin Core. Mm-hmm. I should get an SSD drive, possibly for faster synchronization and the initial block download for four small USB thumb drives for $3 each and the printer and printer paper. Okay. And I click, let's assume that I have these, even though I don't think I have four small USB thumb drives. I click next and it says install Ubuntu on both laptops following these rules and then click next. Yeah, actually. Okay. It, so it it, this is like laptop. a step-by-step -step guide. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all that it is. Um, Yeti cold is basically a document, which is what you're looking at right now. It's, it, you know, it's a website, but it's really just like a, a step-by-step -step guide document to tell you what you need to do. Um, and then it's, uh, it's some Python scripts over the top of Bitcoin core, just, because it makes it easier um, to do some of the stuff that we're doing, like, you know, write down your, your seed words and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that's it. So it's a, it's a thin layer to make it more user-friendly to use Bitcoin Core. Um, for, for hot, it's, uh, it's not multi-sig. Uh, so you basically end up um, with a full node, like you, you buy... $12 worth of USB drives, you buy a cheap $60 laptop, um, you know, netbook or whatever, uh, you install Ubuntu on it, which if you're not technical, that sounds really intimidating, but it's really not that bad. Um, it's not any harder than installing Windows um, and probably a lot easier, actually. So you install Ubuntu and then you go out to uh, the website again and it has you download and run a script that installs Bitcoin Core and just steps you through writing down your seed words. Um, and the only reason that we have the USB drives is just that uh, it 
it allows you to um, have multiple convenient copies of your seed words. So you, you, uh, you copy your seed words uh, on paper and then you throw it on three USB drives and uh, you're, you know, it's not likely that you're going to lose your money at that point uh, because your house burns down. You know, you probably have a, a USB drive somewhere or a piece of paper somewhere that has the information you need. But that's very simple and very straightforward and, you know, as close to free as you can possibly be. The other thing that, that's important to note is that, you know, you have this cheap laptop that you're using for this. When you're done, you can continue to use it. Like then at that point, you have a full node that's validating all your transactions. It's making sure it's running over Tor. So it's making sure when you send transactions, it's, you know, relatively private, a whole lot more private than using a hardware wallet. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but most of the time when you're using a hardware wallet, you're sharing your balance and your IP address, which can easily be tied to your home address um, with whatever company you're using. So if you really trust Trezor, that's cool. But if you really don't want them to know exactly how much Bitcoin you have and where you live, uh, don't do that. You're going to have to set up a full node and it's going to be you know, more work. Um, and it's not what most people do. So, um, But yeah, when you're done, you have a full node. On that laptop. Okay, you, you let me stop you there. You cut out for longer than two minutes. I think it got recorded. I'm I'm seeing the audio on my side show up. Is it is it showing up on your side? There's just a small gap there when I stop talking for a second. Hopefully, I will have the proper audio file because I haven't heard anything. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I keep losing connection and it's reconnecting. I don't I don't know why that is. Um, might be having just trouble with my ISP today. Uh, but yeah, I think it got recorded. So um, let's see. Yeah, the the the, um, the summary of what I was saying is that uh, at the end of this, you have a computer setup that's a full node. You don't have to you don't have to keep that thing running. Like if you just have you know three thousand bucks, you want to throw in Bitcoin, um, grab any laptop, back it up, format it, install Ubuntu, um, set this up, write down your seed words, send your Bitcoin into it. And then erase it and go back to using it, right? And you're out 12 bucks total for the USB drives. And you've got a pretty dang good cold storage solution for a few thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin. And it costs you $12. Okay, so it's back and it's working and it's letting me record once again. And I hear you, which is quite an achievement. We were talking about the cold storage that you developed. And why is it free out of seven signatures? Yeah, the, the main reason that I did that is that I think the biggest risk to people isn't, um, especially if they're using multi-sig, it really isn't theft. Um, you know, it's possible that people are going to figure out that your will is actually a private key and then um, track down uh, two more of your private keys. It's, it's not zero chance that that could happen. But the chance of that happening versus just a natural disaster, you know, a California wildfire taking out your house and your mom's house uh, and you've got, you know, three keys between the two of you seems more likely. Um, so it's really a judgment call. Uh, but I, you know, it's a, it's a well-informed judgment call of trying to keep digital stuff alive uh, for a couple decades. And uh, it was a tough call between like a three of six. I wouldn't do a three of five um, for larger amounts. I think that's kind of easy to see why that's a bad idea. You lose three keys you lose all your information, that wildfire scenario could easily hit three locations. You know, your, your safety deposit box down the street, your house, um, and, uh, you know, maybe your friend's house, uh, your lawyer in the neighborhood, whatever. Um, so 
you know, earthquakes, natural disasters, floods, things like that could take out three um, fairly, fairly, you know, within the realm of possibility. So the thought was I wanted it to be where you would have to lose four keys um, or you could lose four keys and you would still be fine. Um, so you could have done maybe a three of six. I would say that's fine. But a three of seven just gives you one more key to lose before you lose your Bitcoin. And uh, this is a weird world. Um, people don't really have an intuitive sense of what it means to lose a piece of paper or lose a few pieces of paper and literally lose your life savings or a significant amount of your investment. Because uh, there's always safety nets and everything else. But this is it, man. You lose four pieces of paper, even with the Eddie Colds. Uh, you lose five pieces of paper, it's gone, right? It's just completely gone. There's not enough uh, computing power of the universe to ever get that back for you. Um, so uh, being a little bit um, cautious, I think, for those sort of funds, I think, is is worth the trouble. Um, and it's not too hard to find seven locations, I think, where you could, uh, where you could store stuff. Um, so that was really the trade-off, I think, between an accountant, a lawyer, um, you know, trusted family member, a couple safety deposit boxes, home safe, you know, you, you can get seven places uh, that are pretty hard to, to steal from um, and be pretty confident that even if you're a lawyer and accountant or flakes and they lose it, you're still not going to lose your Bitcoin. What about the people who buy steel plates and they engrave their private keys on the steel plate and they say they, they don't have to trust somebody else with a, a part of their private key? You just write it down on something which resists to floods and to fires and whatever natural disasters. Yeah, I think um, so. I don't really care. Like I've, I've been in this kind of debate with Dan Held. Uh, he's the head of business development. Um, so lots of security background. Now I'm just I'm just throwing throwing cheap shots. Uh, so he, he's the head sales guy, head business development guy at uh, Kraken, and we were going back and forth. Uh, just over the last few days, because I don't recommend people use steel. Um, and he thinks that, you know, that it's really important there, but I don't really care. Right. Like if you, if you write your seed word down, seed words down on steel in some form, or you write them on paper, it doesn't really, I don't think matter very much as long as they're geographically distributed. Um, the reason that I don't recommend people use steel is that user error and stress and if you've ever done something like this, just knowing that, you know, if there's a significant amount of money in play and you screw it up, uh, you're going to lose it is enough to make people really nervous. So as somebody that's been in security for a long time, I've seen a lot more things go wrong from data loss, from user error. Um, and user error is exacerbated by stress and time. And, and just the amount, it's not that it's stressful to write things down on metal, the amount of time that you spend engaged in this activity is stressful because you're dealing with stuff that's stressful. And so you don't want to have that user fatigue if you can avoid it. So you, there's, there's some serious downsides to using steel. Like it's the user fatigue. It's the hassle. Um, some of the products are really psychotic. Like there's one that's really popular that's going around right now that, uh, that has, it's like a steel cylinder and you slide your um your words down on the steel cylinder and there's like a you, when you when you pull it out you pull out all of these things well if you don't flip the right metal tab over and you pull this thing out all of your seed words pour out onto your desk and and they're randomized um so they're you know i'm not going to recommend that product and i'm not going to recommend 
people just go some grab some random product off the shelf. Uh, partly because of the risk of some stupid thing like that causing major problems. And you don't get much for it, right? Like the, you think that steel is real durable. Well, if you have a flood and it gets washed away, it doesn't matter that it exists if it's under three and a half feet of silt, um, which is very, very possible. So we've learned in uh, the software security world over decades of doing this that offsite backups are the solution. It's not so much about the medium. Um, you want it to be, you know, relatively resilient, um, but it's way more important that you just have them spread out in multiple locations. So, and when you use something like these different steel products, um, let's say that you get that cylinder and you throw that in an envelope and you give it to your lawyer and you say, Hey, this is my will. That's more suspicious and interesting than if it's just a bunch of paper. Um, so I don't think it's, uh, <laughs> Oh crap! I don't. I don't know if this is going to get recorded, but I'll finish the thought. Um, I don't. I don't think that there's a significant benefit as far as durability goes if it's in multiple locations. Um, there's stress that goes along with it, and then you know, depending on where you put it, it could be more enticing for an attacker. More, uh, you know, it could spark curiosity, and uh, so that, that's why I wouldn't recommend it. But at the end of the day, I don't really care if you have it on steel or whatever. You have it in seven places. You're probably going to be fine. And it's, it's not something that I think is worth really fighting about. Uh, I think it's the other things that are worth fighting about are things like multi-sig, like that, that all fightable cover because that's really. It's okay now. I hear you. It's recording. Let's take advantage of this. And one question, I'm not sure what you said there, but I can possibly anticipate that something revolves around to your background in security. And you had this debate with Dan Held, who is just into business stuff. So would you say that you're cypherpunk and what is the definition of the term? Because it gets thrown around quite a lot and people say, oh, that's cypherpunk or you're being very cypherpunk. And it has become much more of a compliment than, you know, at first it was used like a play at cypher, like cryptography, cypher stuff. And punk being against the establishment. It was a play on cyberpunk, which is the more popular term. And OGs include Tim May and David Chom and Nick Sabo and Hal Finney and everybody who was there in the 1980s and 1990s, possibly working on DigiCash or some other privacy protocols. I guess we can say that people working on Tor are cypherpunk they developed something which expands on the stuff that David Chom wrote in the 1980s. Right. And this, this has been, I mean, I think the cypherpunk movement is basically an abolitionist movement, right? Um, the way that I define slavery is the systematic uh, expropriation of somebody else's stuff. Um, so, you know, we had racial slavery in the South, uh, but we actually had cases where the slaves, even in that situation, were, had like a certain amount of autonomy, right? Like the slave owner didn't really want to be living with the slaves. They would go off into the fields that was far from the, the plantation. Um, but the thing that mattered is that they produced and that they got fleeced on a regular basis. And uh, my human threat model that's on 10hoursofbitcoin.com goes into this. But, but I think that right now we're living in a time where um, we have central bank slavery, where it's just it's way more cost effective to take your stuff uh, through the money printing system 
um, than it is to uh, than it is to smack you on the back and make you do work. Uh, ever since the Industrial Revolution, just you know, beatings were not enough to be make slavery pro- profitable. Unfortunately, you know, central bank slavery has been really really effective. Uh, but that's okay. I mean, it's like, what else are you going to do with your life? I don't mind being a minority of people that are trying to, you know, end human slavery or at least greatly reduce it. Um, and at the end of the day, like, we don't, we don't really care if we're popular because we don't think that that's the way to bring about change. Um, we think that, uh, and we don't think it's through like a violent uprising either, right? So I don't, I don't need to get like a bunch of people with pitchforks together in order to do anything good. I can just sit back and write some code. Um, you know, I can hang out, drink some tea, um, work with Will, my son, buildyetticold.com, um, help people secure their own Bitcoins and, and take those out of supply so that the price will go up and, uh, you know, have a, a much bigger impact anyway. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to, uh, it's pretty hard to be able to, com- or it's pretty hard to complain about the, the disproportionate impact that we can have and we can still have, you know, a, a pretty good life um, in the process. I was about to ask you just one last question because I know you have to go. And it's about Yeti Cole because that has been like the centerpiece of this interview and I feel like we should end with this. Why should anyone trust the code? Because you have some sort of Python script that you have to type in after you download Ubuntu and then you download Bitcoin Core. Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I set out to build this, I thought it was just going to be a document that was going to step you through it because I didn't want there to have to be any code that we were writing. But it was just too hard. Um, the user experience was was really, really difficult. There was a lot of copying and pasting that would have caused a lot of problems. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a question that everybody should ask. The answer is that um, two things. One is that it's as little code as possible. And I think I think the goal for any uh, any project trying to help people do cold, cold storage on Bitcoin Core should be to minimize their own code as much as possible. And the other is make it as easy to read as possible. So use something like Python where everybody can go through it. So it's, uh, it's really the best that anybody can do, I think. If anybody has any ideas of how to make it even better, um, you know, it's an open source project. You could fork it and do that, or you could just tell us because we'd be probably up for implementing those those changes. Um, one idea is to try to display the commands that we're about to run before we run them. Um, so we're working on that. That'll make it a little bit more transparent. But um, but really, uh, if you're if you're using a large amount of money, it's probably not a bad idea to pay somebody, and it wouldn't cost that much. Like you could have a Python developer probably look at it for a half an hour because there's not that much code there. It's mostly just buttons and stuff, which they can just skip over. See that we are really generating the, you know, that that our, everything security important is actually happening inside Bitcoin Core. Um, if, if I was going to secure half a million bucks, I'd probably pay a developer 60 bucks just to look over this code. Okay, that's a fair point. And is this making you any money or else why would you spend money and time developing it? Yeah, no, there's no, there's no money involved. Um, this was the first project that my son did where he was the uh, sole developer on it. Um, so this was, he's 15. This was a huge, like fun family project basically. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if, if, uh, 
if anything, you know, it'll help enhance his reputation a little bit. Like maybe he'll get some freelance work out of it in the future. But mostly that was the purpose. Like I wanted to build something to kind of contribute to the uh, to the Bitcoin project that I think is really important. Um, I don't think there's anything that I could spend my time on that's more likely to have a positive impact on the world um, than Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I'm a cypherpunk. I obviously think this is a good strategy. Um, but uh, if it, if if the timing didn't work out where Will needed a good first project, um, we probably wouldn't have built it. So but that's that's uh, that's why it's there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it also, uh, it's also something that I wanted to use. Like I wanted to use multi-sig. I don't have, uh, crazy amounts of Bitcoin, but for the amount that I have, I wanted to know that that was secured. So, you know, to some degree, I also built it just to scratch my own itch. Yeah. Congratulations for your son. And I hope one day he becomes a Bitcoin core developer, but the kind who actually gets funded. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, he's doing really well. Well, he he also works on mathbot.com, which is something that I think, you know, it, it's it's also, I'm semi-retired at this point. I've uh, I've done pretty well in software startups. So so I've been working on MathBot for at least a couple of years now. Also a thing to scratch my own itch. I've got, you know, uh, half a dozen uh, plus kids that I need to teach math to. So um, so Will has been helping me build that and, uh, eventually there'll probably be a little bit of money that comes in through that. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I, I've been fortunate to be able to work on stuff that I think is important and, you know, basically charity, um, for the last few years. Yeah, I appreciate it. And it's good to have a cypherpunk in the show. I think you're the first one possibly. I'm not sure what Woody Wertheimer considers himself to be. I think he probably does consider himself a cypherpunk. Okay. And I also had Donald McIntyre, who is more into business, but is a partner of Nick Sabo's. Right. I think he probably does too. Um, although uh, I always have to give him uh, crap about his, uh, his scam coin. But other than that, uh, I really enjoy his tweets. And I, I think he probably considers himself a cypherpunk. I mean, they're very smart people. They right. know a lot of stuff and they have been in contact with cypherpunks for quite some time. Yep. Agreed. To their credit, if anything, they're like perpetuators of the movement. And I think Donald McIntyre, before being anything for Ethereum Classic, he is like a historian of cypherpunks and he can tell a lot of great stories and has this way of writing articles, which is fascinating, at least to me. Yeah, I agree. I really, I really enjoy him. Um, I think he's blocked me uh, a couple times over the years, and then unblocked me because uh, I do call out the Ethereum Classic nonsense. But, but you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of the same thing with David Chom. Like, I don't know what what's going on over there, but uh, it, it it pains me that there has to be a scam going involved. But uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, you can't say these guys aren't brilliant. I think David Chum is a genius <laughs> and I did an interview with him and he seemed so bored. Like he was trying to make an effort to pay attention to me because he knew he could use his time in a better way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, he, he's definitely a brilliant guy. Um, and uh, there's no question that he's probably accomplished more in his lifetime than I'll accomplish in my lifetime. <laughs> so you can't, you can't, I don't know. It's kind of hard it's a hard situation where you can see that there's a scam, 
right? That, that, uh, the project that he's working on right now is just utter nonsense. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's probably smarter than me. So it's a, <laughs> it's a tough situation to be too critical. Yeah. He finds himself in a kind of delicate position because he wrote all that great stuff. He had a prolific career up to one point when he ran DigiCash into bankruptcy. And after that, he disappeared, at least from the public eye. I guess he still went to conferences and did some work. And right. he, he realized how people have capitalized on the ideas that he had. And he brags about building the first ever blockchain when he was... Which university was he in? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. He was in know. California, I think. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that, like, a lot of the uh, a lot of the guys that matter right now and that have had a big impact on Bitcoin um, did work at DigiCash or had associations back then, and uh, and that he was a pioneer. Like, he was he was the first person that I know of that was making real progress on electronic cash. So, um, and uh, you know solving hard cryptography problems so and uh, part of me yeah. wishes that he had success with digicash because now we would pay in a much more secure way on the internet and yeah private also well you know and digicash had to exist and it had to fail i think um because it it showed it showed the flaws in that system that brought about the ideas that make bitcoin work um so it's in in a way, you could say that he worked on Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's a what is Bitcoin if not a mission to create a secure money? And he certainly worked on that mission. I think he was more about privacy than he was about security, but whatever. I feel like Monero is closer to what Chom wanted to do than Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, I, I have an interview with, uh, with Fluffy Pony on my YouTube channel when I was getting ramped up and... Uh, I, I can say with some pretty good confidence that it is a scam, um, that it, it doesn't have a, a chance of actually solving any problems. Um, and that it's, it's promoters lie about its capabilities and its importance. So, uh, I, I don't think that, I don't think that it was a scam back then, uh, when these guys were building it, they knew that it, they knew they basically had to have the approval of governments. They just thought they could get that approval. Um, and when the, when it was clear that that, you know, uh, Digicash proof that, that wasn't going to happen, that they weren't going to get that approval. Um, I think at that point, uh, they started working on, uh, you know, solving that problem, which they did with, uh, with proof of work and, you know, the other innovations in Bitcoin. Yeah. Makes sense. That's fair. Don't you have to go in like 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, actually I should go now, man. I should, I should wrap it. Yeah. So thank you very much. JW Wetterman. This was really good. And I'm, upset right now i'm pissed that it worked so well in the end when we basically talked about stuff that's not really related to the core topic but it's <laughs> yeah. so good that we had this recorded and we did this interview and i'll see how i can make the best out of it yeah and you know maybe we'll if you, if you want to re-record uh in a few days I'll, i'm sure i'll have another gap in my schedule we can uh, maybe use this and uh, and then have another one that's really a little bit more focused. Yeah, always, because I, I enjoy critical minds, you know. I, I feel like I'm learning. I feel like I'm having my opinions challenged. And Totally. 
it goes back and forth as opposed to talking to marketing people who are like, oh, yeah, we have this product and it's the best and it does this and that. And if you ask them questions, they're going to babble and say they're nonsense. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that's the that's been I've, I was never on social media until a couple of years ago. Um, but jumping on Twitter and getting involved in recording podcasts and and then also being a guest on podcasts has been just a very cool experience to get ramped up and try to stay abreast of things. So I always appreciate it. OK, I will end the interview with this mention that you have the last ever interview recorded with Tim May. And it's on YouTube and I haven't listened to it yet, but I will listen to it after this. And thank you very much for doing that. It's a great community service. And at some point, I hope that more people will discover it and listen to it. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm sure I'm sure they will. He's going to have a he's going to have a very impressive legacy that we get to watch over the next few years, I think. OK, thank you. Bye. Let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020. And for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage. And in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. and You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. 
You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution.